Good morning. We're continuing our study of Revelation, and we're going to talk about the fifth seal and the sixth seal this morning. So if you would, take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to cover verses 9 through 17. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the text, there are some questions as to how these seals line up in terms of chronology. So there are different ways to approach Revelation, and it's hard to do them at the same time. Whenever I'm teaching, and you'll notice this the past few sermons, I kind of break it down into two sections. You have the chronology, the chronological questions. When does this stuff happen? How does it relate to the seven years of the tribulation and the millennium that follows? I have that section, and then I have the application section, which is really more of the sermon portion. So on your notes, the two questions that we need to answer before we really get into the application our chronological one. So the first question is, when are the martyrs killed for their faith and who slays them? It says in verse nine of Revelation six, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony, which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren, that they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And so concerning that fifth seal, which reveals the martyrs underneath the altar there, when are the martyrs killed for their faith? Who slays them? So in terms of the seven year tribulation, the seals, as we've already looked at, they take place in the first half, probably in the first quarter of the tribulation. So the people who are being martyred here are not those who have refused to take the mark of the beast. That's to come later. The beast is not revealed as the beast until midway through the tribulation. When he breaks the covenant that he's made with Israel, he goes into the Holy of Holies, commits the abomination of desolation by claiming to be God there and forces everybody to take his mark. So the mark has to do with the Antichrist being deified in the eyes of the world that hasn't happened yet. So while he's been revealed as a world ruler, he's the rider on that white horse of the first seal. He has not come as the God in the flesh that he's going to claim to be later on. So that means the persecution that happens here is a persecution that it hits a little bit closer to home. Could it be all martyrs from the beginning? Okay. So yes, yes, we, we will get to that. Um, I think that there's something to that view. At the same time, it seems to be that when the seal is open, what is revealed is happening when the seal is opened. So it's like the seal triggers it. So whenever this first seal is open, the Antichrist is revealed and he's revealed historically. It's in the future. You know, he steps onto the pages of history for the first time. Same thing with the red horse, which represents war. That's referring not just war in general, Okay, it sums up war in general, you could say. I mean, symbolically speaking, but as far as its um, direct fulfillment in terms of the end times, it's going to be world war, which hasn't happened yet. So everything is building up to that point. I mean, there have been many antichrists in history, but the, the antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. There have been many martyrs in history, but all those martyrdoms are going to culminate in the worst phase 
of martyrdom or Christian persecution that's ever happened. That's what's being revealed here. So yes, I think that in the background, this has to do with justice for all martyrs in general. And it's promised that all martyrs in general will receive um, that crown that's talked about in scripture, the crown of life. Um, we, we know that they will receive white robes. So what's said here can indirectly pertain to other martyrs, but in particular, it is talking about a martyrdom that's going to intensify during the tribulation period. Yes. The fact that they're given white robes <clears throat> indicates that they have physical bodies, which puts this after the rapture. Um, well, these are people who apparently are martyred when the fifth seal is open, which would mean they were people who were left behind. Right. But and I'm so that if it happened before the rapture, they wouldn't have physical bodies. Well, it, it says in verse number nine, this is an interesting thing because it's actually a, a verse that's often used to argue the opposite of that. In a way, it says, I saw under the altar, the souls of them that were slain. Mm. So if you were to look at the Greek here and you were to read uh, the writings of Randy Alcorn, I think that he's made some good statements uh, about this. This indicates that when people die, like even now, when they go to heaven, they're not some invisible, misty, ghost-like. They're like an yeah, state. They are in an um, intermediate state in that they have not received glorified bodies yet. We know that Revelation 19 and 20 spells out that the martyrs will not receive their glorified bodies until after the tribulation is over. Okay. So these are people who are in heaven. They have bodies of some sort, but they're intermediate ones. Uh, so, yeah, this would be really strong proof that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So these are not people who, like many of you, they die and then we sleep in the earth uh, until eventually the resurrection happens. Like these are people that after they left the tribulation through persecution, through death, they entered into heaven and they exist consciously there. Um, so that's the setting in terms of the martyrdom itself, like who perpetrates this. It's most likely Babylon. But again, Babylon's under two phases. There's the harlot phase where the harlot rides on the Antichrist. Okay, so that means that the Antichrist is supporting the harlot and the harlot seems to be the one in charge, just like the person riding on the horse is in charge. However, it says that the Antichrist will turn on the harlot and there's going to be a big betrayal. Not only will he betray Israel, but he's going to turn on the revive, revive Roman Empire and he is going to say, all right, guys, I'm the top dog now. I'm not representing your interests. I expect to be worshipped. I'm God in the flesh. If you don't do that, you will die just like everybody else who doesn't comply. Off now, yes, and most people will comply, but there will be even some people that supported the Antichrist prior to this that turn on him. That's why there's this need to overturn the whore of Babylon. So there's going to be a coup uh, of some sort. But we do know that the harlot is already anti-Christ, anti-Christianity. And so in Revelation 17, it says that, um, you know, they they fill up in their cup the blood of the martyrs. And in filling up that cup, they're also filling up the wrath of God, which will be poured out upon the harlot. And so, is, you have a question? Yes. Is Babylon the Great considered the, um, the ruling government or the one ruling Yes, yes, time? yes, I believe so. I think that it is a religious institution. There's going to be a marriage of state and church at that time. Uh, and I don't really even want to use the word church necessarily. It's going to be a marriage of state and religion like Nimrod. So Nimrod wasn't establishing uh, a state church in a Christian sense. He was just establishing idolatry, demon worship. 
And the harlot is going to be definitely spearheading that. Uh, but again, the Antichrist is going to add a new phase to things and say, okay, you have to worship me. You have to worship me in particular. So today we have definitely the harlot emerging, I believe. Just like the Antichrist hasn't been revealed, the harlot hasn't been revealed yet. But we're seeing the stage being set. The New Age is becoming very popular. We've talked about this uh, a lot in the past. And we we have a growth in this uh, this doctrine of tolerance, which really isn't tolerance at all. And that is, you know, if you don't say everything's okay, then you're not okay with us and we'll suppress you. <laughs> we'll cancel okay you. you. Yes, uh, exactly. You know, if you're not with us, if you're against us. So for all their talk of tolerance uh, and for all their criticism of Christianity for saying, no, there is a black and white issue here. You have to believe in Jesus or you don't. Um, they hate that, but yet at the same time, they endorse that. So they're very hypocritical. So you have a lot of people that they'll talk all about freedom of speech only if you're saying what they want you to say. And so the cancel culture, I think, is setting the stage for this. And we've seen people so vehement uh, that I can imagine very, very soon a time where these same people that are saying fire them. OK, you know, cut their salary. I can imagine them going from that to saying off with their head. Well, they were saying deny the medical care. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. So I think I think that it's progressively going to get worse, and that's not far fetched for any of us here. Yeah. Like all of us here that are looking at these things and watching them. Saying, Let them die. I hope they yeah. die. Yes. They already got people on Twitch, people saying that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, and so it's growing. There are some. There are always going to be those who are more extreme that'll say things that other people aren't willing to. But you do see, like Steve just said, we see a growing number of people that are getting more. Uh, they had just have more vitriol in their words, right? And they're not afraid of being judged. They don't care what, like, yes, they think most people are with them anyway. And so this is, this is the harlot. She is going to be the one persecuting Christians. So after the rapture happens, this is before the 144,000 witnesses, apparently. I mean, these are people who immediately after the rapture happens, there will be people who get saved. I mean, we know people in our own families who we've been talking about this before they even have a chance to hear the great delusion Okay, which will be introduced soon after the rapture. I think these people are going to have that wake oh, up no. moment. Yeah, they're going to know and they're going to believe. Yes, and, and especially those those who are um, being taught what, what we have talked about. And it's not just us. There are other people that are talking about this too that are being prepared for that delusion. Like, be prepared that after the rapture happens, they're probably going to be talking about life on other planets, aliens. You know, this is a sort of stuff that will be thrown out there for sure. So be prepared. Yeah. When you hear that, you'll know that we're right. You'll That's know exactly. Yes, you, you'll know that we were right. And so there will be people who come along and get saved. I think that's why God extends the period. You know, people wonder, why doesn't he just judge everybody immediately? He could. But like he says to the martyrs here, it says, rest a little while. Rest a little while because people haven't all come in to the fold yet. There are more people to be saved. And while the martyrs are completely just in saying like what has been done to us is sinful. And these are not people who are carnal. Like these are people who in the face of persecution said we're for Jesus and we're willing to give our lives. So he says, I commend you. Like I'm giving you white robes. You know, it's, it's very interesting. I'll talk about this more in a minute, but it's like God is in a, just like Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and served them. It's like God is saying, you've done well, you've done well here, take this. And I don't like to use the word placate because that's not the right word. God doesn't placate because God's sovereign, but God doesn't say, all right, hush, I'm God. I'm the one who's in charge. All right. He, he honors their sacrifice and says, just wait a little bit longer. And it's amazing to think that, uh, 
we, even when we get to heaven, even when we get to heaven and we have glorified bodies or not, we're disembodied, whatever, when we get to heaven and we're free from the flesh, we're still not going to have a perfect perspective. Right. It's like for us, it's either this or that. Like the martyrs are crying for justice. That's righteous. There's there's nothing wrong with that. Get them, God. And God's like, I'm not going to rebuke them because what they're saying is just. But at the same time, God, he sees everything perfectly and he's able to combine in a way I can understand love and justice together and see it perfectly at the same time. We're usually one or the other. We're like. Okay, we love, we show grace or justice, and we have a hard time putting them together. So even though what they're calling for here, you know, was perfectly just at the same time, their perspective is less uh, or it's, it's more limited than God. That's what I'm trying to say. God sees things the way they are. And that's why when we call upon Jesus to come back and we say, Lord, come back when we're doing his will. The Lord doesn't say, all right, now, you know, get to work. If we're doing the work. Okay, if we're doing what God wants us to do, the Lord, he understands, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And there's nothing wrong with calling out Maranatha. We should. I mean, that was the cry of the early church. And in our family, before we say amen, the kids have started saying Maranatha. And so our Lord come. But at the very same time, and I think I talked about this last week, there should be this tension where it's like, Lord, we want you to come. But at the same time, you're patiently waiting and you haven't come yet, which means there's probably more to be done. And so there's that tension that Christians live with. We have over here a desire for him to come today, but then there's this desire to say, well, Lord, we don't want you to come unless it's the right time to come. And so anyways, again, to answer this first question, uh, when are the martyrs killed for their faith? It's by the harlot. Uh, The Antichrist will definitely encourage this. The revived Roman empire, like I said, will be a state religious entity. Uh, But again, while the Antichrist will be part of this persecution, it's not going to be a, okay, worship the Antichrist or not. Exactly. This is during the 144,000 witnesses, right? So this is a uh, period of huge revival. So yes, I, I do believe that this is parallel to the 144,000, but I don't think that these are people that are made up exclusively of their converts. Uh, because you got to think about it, it is going to take time. I don't know how quickly the 144,000 will repent. So we know it is the first half, right? But when will the repentance happen? Will it happen immediately? Like the first day Moses and Elijah preach? Are they all going to get saved immediately? Or is it going to be a, a time period of repentance? I think that it's more reasonable to say that they, it'll be weeks and months of people coming to the truth. But there again, like we've already said, there will be people who come to the truth independent of the 144,000. Right. Uh, people At this point, I would say no. The, the mark uh, is not put in place until the Antichrist kills the two witnesses and is the object of worship after he goes into the temple. How, how will they know if they're Christians or not? What's that now? How will he know if they're a Christian or not? Well, the people who are in the first half, if that's what you're asking, the people in the first half, I think that there will be, of course, technology used to single out people. I mean, if someone has been known to attend Christian meetings, whether it's in a home or it's in a church, okay, or the church building is what I'm trying to say. Like the government's going to know. We already know the government is I'm just saying the government's sticking their nose in things. And so it, I would not put it past the harlot of Babylon to use this technology to say, okay, this person on social media is preaching the gospel. This person has been attending church meetings and they'll be brought before the magistrate just like they were in the early church period. And the magistrate will say, okay, we have evidence that you've been posting these things. We have evidence that you've been attending these meetings. Do you believe Jesus 
or not. There will be people who say no. There will be people who deny their faith. We have that. And that's a separate question for another day. But uh, there seems to be evidence in, in Matthew 24 that people who deny their faith, they're still saved if they genuinely receive Christ. Okay. Um, Peter, we know he denied Christ three times and he didn't lose his salvation. But uh, those people apparently will be disciplined by God. It says that he who endures to the end will be saved or delivered. Uh, the word saved there, many people automatically take it to refer to eternal life. It's often used in a physical sense. We know that Ananias and Sapphira physically were killed. We know the brother who sends the sin unto death in 1 John 5 is physically killed. And so it would not surprise me if during this time period, uh, those who give in, to the pressure of persecution, mm. the carnal believers, if they lose their lives by God's intervention. However that happens, I don't know all the details, but it does appear uh, that God, he does discipline in that way. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, they were denying God in another way. They were denying God in the way they treated the brethren in church. And they were mistreating those um, who didn't have as much money as they did. The rich were mistreating the poor. And it says those richer Christians who were participating in that sin, it says that they got sick and they died. So during this time period, it seems that those who deny their faith um, will be judged in a manner similar to that. But um, there will be a lot of pressure on Christians during this time. And there will be many martyrs who come out of it just like this. Uh, this the next question has to do with when does heaven depart like a scroll. All right, let's keep reading. It says in verse 12, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand. Now there are many different ways that the six seals interpreted. Some people say it's proleptic. So I'm going to give you a vocab word today. You'll find this a lot in, in commentators that are more technical. Proleptic means it's describing something ahead of time that doesn't happen at this point in the tribulation. So they would say this doesn't happen at the first part of the tribulation. It's John looking ahead to something that's going to happen later on. So they would say this is like at the end of the tribulation. The, the sky moves back. Jesus comes down with the saints. That's when this is being described. However, there does seem to be, I've read Revelation many times, and the plainest way to read it is, having simple chronology. It seems that one seal follows the next seal. One judgment follows the next judgment. So if you read it chronologically, as I think you should, this right here is referring to an event that happens in the first half of the tribulation. Now, judgment does not come at this point in a universal scale. Like he doesn't come down and the, the judgment seat is set up. It says there's an earthquake. So many people will die in this, no doubt. But this will be something where people who at this point have been denying the obvious. All these seals, guys, there are Christians talking about them. You know that the two witnesses are talking about these seals. People are trying to blind themselves willingly, closing their eyes, closing their ears, saying, no, this is not of God. This is not of God. I don't believe it. All right, it's just a coincidence. That's your interpretation. But then when the sky rolls back and apparently somehow they glimpse into heaven, 
I think this is like a dimensional thing. Okay. Like the, Steven. This is, yes, Steven. exactly. This is like the, the fabric of space and time being rent. And they look up and they see above the earth into heaven, just like Stephen did. That's a good example. They're going to see the face and the face refers to that Shekinah glory on the throne of the father. And they're going to see the lamb at the right hand of the father, just like we read in the throne room scene. And they're going to see that happen. And when they see it happen, it's going to cause so much fear in them that they're going to want to hide themselves under the rocks and say, we'd rather have the mountain fall on us than see God's face any longer. But they refuse to repent. But that's the next point. Okay. In this moment, they do not deny this is a God thing. This is a lamb thing. They don't deny that. But again, everybody, the hard, the most hardened sinner, when Jesus comes back, will bow. So that means God could force everybody to believe. It is a fact. God could make anybody believe if he exposed them to enough of his glory. So God, after the, the fabric of space-time is rent and they see the glory, it shuts again. It's going to come and it's going to go. It makes All right? me think of the base of the mountain when Moses went up. And exactly. The trumpets and they were terrified. Yes. And- Exactly. And so there are moments in the the biblical narrative where you see the glory of God and then things go back to normal. And like Israel, they were there, they were at the foot of the mountain, but they wandered in the wilderness. And it's like, did you, do y'all not remember what happened? Like, but people forget they get surrounded by distractions. Now it's what you do when the distraction comes. Okay. If you still believe in spite of the distraction, in spite of the deception, that is your choice. That's a real choice. It's like the trees in the garden. There were two of them, okay? There were two options. You needed an option A and an option B to have a real choice. If there was just one, there is no real choice. It's like going to the restaurant, an Italian place, and there's only one thing on the menu, spaghetti. You have no choice. If you're gonna eat there, you gotta eat the spaghetti. But God gives them two options. Here, The option was believe the truth of what you've just seen. God is being super gracious here. He's giving them evidence that no one in the history of the world has seen. But as soon as the evidence goes away, the question is, did that really happen? Or, or, or maybe that wasn't what I thought in the moment. I thought that it was this, but was it really, I got these people over here. I got the new political and religious entity called the harlot, the, this Babylon. They're telling me that's not what it was. That wasn't really God. That wasn't really the lamb. It was this. Now, how are they going to explain it away? I don't know. I, I do. I, I, I think, I think so that you can now worship me. Maybe they could could rob God of his glory in that way. Um, I think that if you go back to the ancients, though, they're probably going to explain this in terms of some cosmic battle. They're going to say God is not real in the sense that the Bible says. There's no creator. Creation is eternal. There are lots of gods, lots of them. There's Yahweh. Yeah, Yahweh is a God, right? But he's an evil God. He's not all powerful. He's not going to win in the end. You need to trust the dragon. You need to trust in his son, the Antichrist. I think that that is going to be the type of worldview. And Matt, you know, your conversation, you know, with your coworker illustrates this fact that today this pagan mentality of many deities, many gods is coming back. And so listen, again, if demons are appearing to people, they're going to be appearing flashy guys. They're going to be in a flashy supernatural manner, manifesting their own power. Like frogs. Like that frogs (laughs) from the mouth. Yeah. That's later in revelation, but true. So there's going to be supernatural on both sides. 
Two options though. Are you going to believe what the Bible says about it? Like this lamb is really the all powerful creator of the universe and you can't win. So why resist, repent, accept his grace, accept his mercy. There's that. And then there's the other supernatural alternative, which says, no, that's not really God. Okay. That's this. Okay. So I think that we need to understand that in the end times, in, in the tribulation period, they're not going to be atheist in the traditional fashion. Okay. They're not going to be the people who say there's no such thing as the supernatural. No, everybody will believe in something supernatural. It's just a question of your worldview. Will it be a pagan one where there's many deities and you think one can beat the other? Think of Balaam. Okay. The doctrine of Balaam. Balaam did not deny that Yahweh was real, but he doesn't show genuine repentance because as soon as he gets an opportunity to, he leads them astray. He encourages the Jewish men to marry the Moabite women and they, they commit fornication with them and they, um, they worship the gods of Moab and God judged the people. So he was able to curse the people. Okay, by getting them to sin. So it's like, what are you thinking, Balaam? Like, I thought that you just saw the angel of the Lord and the whole donkey thing. Like, did you not understand that this is God we're talking about? Balaam was a pagan. Pagans don't deny that gods of tribes are real. In Balaam's mind, Yahweh's real. But he would say Yahweh is Israel's God. And Yahweh is super powerful. And right now he's winning this battle. But He's not all powerful. It's like the Vikings, guys. Like, our, go back to our European ancestors. When the Vikings lost, you know what they said to themselves? They said, oh, well, the Christian God was more powerful this time. Okay, it's like wrestling matches. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Their God won this time. So they didn't deny that the Christian God was real. They just didn't believe the way Christians did about him. They didn't believe that the Christian God was an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God who was self-existent who created everything. They believed that the Christian God was just one among many gods. Mm. And so that's, I think, going to be the worldview of the end times. And if someone would have told me that when I was in college, I would have said, no, people, do, people don't believe in the gods anymore. That's just ridiculous. That's stupid. Like no one's going to do that. But we're seeing an increase in it more and more as years go by. People are into the spiritism. They're into the, the seances. They're into uh, spirit worship, spirit contact. And so they're going to fit Yahweh into that. And the ancient Gnostics, by the way, they did the same thing with the God of the Old Testament. They said that God who created everything is real, but he's evil and he's not an eternal God. He's not an all powerful God. So this is the idea. The spirit of the Antichrist has been around, guys. The devil's been around for thousands of years I mean, and it's just logic, making full circle. Simple logic tells you if there's many gods, someone had to create them. If they're not self-existent. Well, they see, here's the thing. What's, what's being prepped in the minds of people today is that the gods came from nothing themselves. So this was the ancient view. They believed that all that existed in the beginning was like chaos. And chaos is like this void, this nothingness. It sounds a lot like the Big Evolution. Bang. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, coming from the chaos was the first God. That God met another. Oh, look, you came from nothing too. Let's, let's get married babies. and let's have babies. And so then the gods start having children. And that's basically what it is. So in the pagan mentality, there's no such thing as an eternal, self-existent God. Like we believe in a God who's always been. Paganism denies that. So again, they can believe in gods without actually believing in the God. There's just so much inconsistency. Like, of course, we yeah. We worship science. Science tells us that something doesn't come from nothing, but then we believe that something came from nothing. Exactly. Pseudoscience is really a big part of the new age too. They'll say like, oh yeah, we're all about 
the Big Bang were all about evolution. But then they'll start talking about spirits and gods and deities. And you're like, you don't sound like those atheists from like a hundred years ago who thought Mm. all that was nonsense. So today atheism is in one sense, just as strong as it's ever been, but they've adapted it. They've adapted it to where atheism and belief in the gods can be put together. And it sounds so inconsistent. It's the God of the Bible. Yes, that's right. So truly they are atheists in that they do deny an actual capital G God. They don't believe in a real God, but they'll use the term gods to apply to all these other beings, whether you want to call them aliens or spirits or whatever. So that's the kind of belief system that will no doubt make its appearance in the end times. And guys, uh, it, it's crazy to think about it. But if we know anything from the Bible, we, we know that people who have been exposed to the power of God can harden themselves to what they see. And yes. And so these people, the same people that are hiding in the rocks and hiding in the dens are going to be the ones that say, worship the beast who is like the beast. There's no one like him. And so it kind of explains somewhat how later on in the tribulation, the people are cursing the God of heaven. They don't deny that he's there, but they curse him. And it's crazy to me that, that that could be something anybody would ever do. But again, the deception will be so great that they won't even deny that there's something to this God thing. Like there's something to Yahweh. There's something to the Bible, but they won't accept everything that God says about himself, obviously, because God says he's going to win, right? They will deny that. They will, for some reason, rather believe the alternative that the Antichrist gives them. So uh, anyways, those are the two chronological questions that we need to cover. And obviously we are not going to cover the rest this morning because we are all hungry. Okay. I'm hungry and the Lord understands. So anyways, we're going to stop there. So we've dealt with the chronological questions, um, the timing of the fifth seal, the timing of the sixth seal. And next week we'll talk more about how we apply all this to our lives. God bless you. And hopefully you join us again. Bye.